Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Something I've been very anxious to get to, and we are finally here. So, praise God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you have to understand before we get started... That this was written by Moses, okay? So just a little background, very quick. First five books of the Bible written by Moses, given to the Israelites as they came out of Egyptian captivity. And so he's helping them to understand that God is the creator and sustainer of all life. And they're a newly formed nation under God, and yet they had been in captivity for over 450 years, and so therefore they needed some education. Moses wrote this account to help the Israelites recognize that the same one who called everything into existence from nothing was the one who had delivered them out of Egypt and would now establish them as his people, the nation of Israel. Sometimes we just jump into Genesis and we forget the background that this was written for a very specific purpose, as the other four books of uh, Moses' writing in the Pentateuch were written. Now, the main point that I want to get across today is the incredible comprehensiveness of God's Word. I know I've gone into a lot of technical stuff, grammatical, lexical, theological, even some philosophical stuff. But now I want to just get to expositing the text of Scripture. And then as we move in more and more to Genesis, the sermons are going to get more and more narrative, because the text gets more narrative. But we've got a ways to go for that. We've got Genesis 1 and 2, which is historical narrative in its writing genre, but it still reads as propositional statements, even though they're all linked together. Genesis 1.1, it speaks of the beginning of everything. The beginning of everything And today we're going to talk about that as well as explaining a little bit about the space-time-matter continuum. Um, That's very, very important for us to understand as we move forward through the days of creation. That space-time-matter continuum is basically the stuff of our universe. It's everything. (laughs) So the structure is the first verse of Genesis 1-1 is a general statement And then beginning in Genesis uh, 2 starts the historical narrative as it follows through, and we'll get more into that. But let's open in a word of prayer, ask God to open up our minds, buckle our seatbelts, and let's get into it. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to look into your word to Genesis. What a marvelous, marvelous work. Thank you for recording it for us, because if you did not, we would not know what took place there. And we take you at your word that what you have written is true. And Father, we are grateful for that. And so, Father, we pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to receive that which the Holy Spirit has for each one of us today. And it'll be different for each one of us, but let us look for that truth, that, that concept that just grabs hold of our hearts. And let us embrace it, Father, willingly, and not fight against you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, when we start with, in the beginning, God, 
Bereshith bara Elohim. Bereshith bara Elohim. It's an absolute beginning. Rashith means beginning, and then there's a little preposition in before that. Rashith means beginning. It refers to the first phase of a step that's taken. And the point of this verse is undoubtedly that God, in absolute sovereign power, existing before the universe was created, created it. Because it says, in the beginning, God created. So if he started everything off and created everything that is, it stands to reason that he was already present, right? Which is a whole other thing, which I could have done four or five weeks on alone, but I won't. Okay? I, I love Genesis. To me, Genesis is the bedrock of Scripture. The point of the verse is that God created everything. He was the initiator of the first steps in the creation of the entire universe. And one man has pointed out the futility of the naturalist's perspective or understanding, the, the naturalist, the atheist, the evolutionist perspective, that nobody times nothing equals everything. Nobody times nothing equals everything. Now, when you cut God out of creation, you end up with that kind of reasoning. When you cut God out of everything that has to do with society and marriage and family and everything else like we see today, you end up with what we have, which is chaos. We're descending into utter chaos. That author goes on to question some things. What was the first cause that caused everything else? Where did matter come from? Where did energy come from? How could life, self-consciousness, and rationality evolve from inanimate, inorganic material and matter? Who designed the many complex and interdependent organisms and sophisticated ecosystems we observe? And when did intelligence originate? How did this all come about? Well, frankly, I don't have enough faith to believe that there is no God. Because evolutionists or creationists, we all operate on faith. Because we were not there. And so you either believe one thing or you believe another thing. Genesis 1.1 begins exactly where our questions about origin begin and categorically answers them succinctly and sufficiently. Hebrews 11.3 identifies that it is only by faith that we are able to comprehend the answers to those questions. It says, by faith we understand. That's so critical. What's first there? By faith we understand. What's first? Faith. You understand because you have believed. When you believe, God illumines and opens the eyes. It's by faith that we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. I mean, that sentence in itself should just absolutely settle things in people's minds, but it does not. Without faith, you cannot know. Genesis 1.1 does not leave us uninformed as to the origin of the universe and everything that is in it. It says, 
Bereshith bara Allah. Okay? Sorry, I went into Indonesian there. Elohim. Now, the first words of the Bible teach us vital facts about God. Number one, God is self-sufficient. Three of them for you. God is self-sufficient, not true of anything or anyone else. Because everything is dependent upon something. God is before all things. He is the ultimate cause coming from and before all things. He is independent of all. We can't say that about anything else in the universe. Secondly, God is self-sufficient. He's not only self-existent, he is self-sufficient. It's a natural outflow from his self-existence. He does not need anything because he existed before everything. And the practical outworking of this is that God does not need us. We are so proud as human beings. He doesn't need us for glory to be given to him. He doesn't need us for love to be shown to him or for fellowship with him. It is not as though he was lonely, and so he created us to meet that need. That's a false view of God. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of creation is self-sufficient. So self-existent, self-sufficient, and thirdly, God is eternal. Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, I love this, you are God. You are God. Not you were God or you will be God. You are God. Because he is eternal, he is the same as yesterday, today, and forever, and all he has revealed himself to be through the Bible will remain so throughout eternity. What a book we have in our hands. <laughs> what a, what a, a privilege to have the self exposure that God gave us in the written word. It's so precious. He's eternal. In Christ, he has loved us with an everlasting love, and he will do so forever. He does not change. So he's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He is eternal. Now let's just break down things a little bit. In the beginning, God. Bereshith bara Elohim. Elohim. That is the name that is given to God in the first verse of the Bible. And the title given to him, Elohim, is from the singular Eloah. Eloah. It's the Hebrew word for God. The God of Israel in the Old Testament usually employed this in title and throughout the Old Testament, and there is only one God of Israel. Monotheism, right? And his personal name he revealed later to Moses, and we all know that, I am that I am, Jehovah, or Yahweh. So that name signifies majesty, power, and creatorship. Now, the reason Elohim is different from Eloah is because there's a grammatical marker, I am, on the end of it. And that means plural. 
doesn't mean that there are many gods. It means that there is one God and three persons, and we'll get to that in a little bit here. The creator God. The im is a Hebrew grammatical marker for plurality, and I can show you this very easily. You know what a cherub is. Ah, she's such a cute little cherub. That's not true. We've already studied angelology, and cherub are majestic creatures, right? But a bunch of them together are called cherubim. Cherubim. That im is on the end of that. Or seraphs. The ones that flew around in Isaiah's prophecy and vision in Isaiah 6 and said, holy, 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 seraphim. Seraphim. One is a seraph. Many are a seraphim. Okay? So what is significant here is that while the title of plurality does not directly identify the Trinity. In the Old Testament, it's hinted at all the way through. It becomes much more clear when we get to the New Testament. But the Trinity is not necessarily critically identified here, but it is intimated. Right at the very beginning of the Bible. Now, other uh, verses are going to fill this out in our understanding. And I'll just talk to you just a little bit about the Trinity and their involvement in creation. You see, the Father planned it, the Son carried it out, and the Holy Spirit energized it. All three were involved in creation. And in John 1, the Gospel of John, New Testament, verses 1 through 3, it shows the logos of God, the Word of God, later identified as Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to have been in the beginning, and he is identified as engaged in the creation. Why? Because it says this, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In the Greek, that means exactly what it says in the English. You do not have to be really astute to understand what that says. Whether you believe that or not is another matter, but there's no mistaking what that means. And then again in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, we show Christ again as the only one by whom all things were created, quote, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, there's those angels, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I think maybe we should study Colossians after I get done with Genesis and Isaiah. So we'll get there. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Colossians 1.16 and 17. Now, here's an interesting, look, look back at your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 2. It says, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. There's the third person of the Trinity involved in creation. So we have the Father planning it, and we have the Son carrying it out according to the verses that we read, and the Spirit of God is energizing, and I can't wait to get to verse 2 where it talks about moving over the surface that's set into motion all the waves, energy waves, light waves. 
This is so majestic, people. I feel so insufficient to bring these things to you. And why is it important when we, when we say that right from the beginning the Trinity is indicated in the creation? Elohim, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God. Because it shows the absolute beginning of all things, but there was something going on before the absolute beginning of all things. The beginning of all things was absolute. The creation of the heavens and the earth, our universe, as far as you can see with the telescopes that we have now, everything had a beginning. That's what we're talking about. But even before that, there was something already going on between the persons of the Trinity. You see, we see personhood and personality, and this is significant because modern people who do not believe in God as creator believe in an impersonal beginning that came about by natural causes without God or, and natural processes over billions of years. Some say 15.5, 4.5 billion years of process, and here we are, okay? But that's impersonal. Where did personhood come from? Where did personality come from? You see, according to the Bible, the beginning begins with a person and is not impersonal. We can see the importance of this as the triune God is seen at work again in Genesis 1.26. Look down in your chapter to Genesis 1.26. It says, Then Elohim said, Let us bara man in our image. Let us create man in our image. Let us make him according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, etc. And so we see that there's a plurality here. And it's not the angels he's talking to. It's the members of the Trinity. And so we see that rather than being impersonal, there is a very personal beginning of things here. If we read John 17, 24, it's it's so interesting. We see thought and planning was in place and volition, there was will, let us make. John 17, 24 says, and it's Jesus praying to his father, you, father, you, father, loved me, loved me before the foundation of the world. Love was present before the foundation of the world. Communication was present. Volition was present. Personality was present in the, in the Trinity of God. All the components of a relationship are flashing in brightness that we can't ignore. The personal God in all eternity is in contrast with the philosophical other, the impersonal everything, which is frequently the atheist's conception of origin. But something existed before creation, and that something was not something but someone. And he wasn't static. The Father loved the Son. There was a plan. There was communication and, and, and planning, and, and promises were even made prior to the creation of the heavens and the earth. In Titus 1-2, you can take this down, 
It says that God promised eternal life before the world began. And the verse also shows that the Father was making that promise of his love gift to his Son, a gift of those chosen of God. Before we were ever born, before the universe ever came into existence, God promised his Son a love gift. God's people. Wow. God is personal. He communicates. He loves. He plans. And he is volitional. This is so very important today because those without God are without hope in the world and they need to know this God. I was listening to Greg Laurie yesterday and he was talking about he wants another Jesus revolution. Right? Now, I'm old enough to know what that was. (laughs) And there's a movie out now. But he said, you know, with all the pot use and, and, and uh, folks are going towards psychedelics again, trying to get out of their, their situation. I mean, if you listen to the news and look around you, it, it can get pretty hopeless. Well, we have hope. In fact, our church is called the beacon of hope. <laughs> We've got a lot to offer, folks. We've got to start talking about it. We've got to start opening our mouths and telling people about the hope that is in Jesus Christ. In the following words of Genesis 1-1, consider how they bring a clear refutation to so many false religions and philosophies. In the beginning, God, Elohim, right? Well, that denies atheism. That teaches there is no God. There is a God. And it also denies polytheism, that there are many gods. No, there is one God, Elohim. Three persons, one God. Secondly, in the beginning, God created. Well, that denies fatalism, which is chance. There was planning and there was order. And it denies atheistic evolution, the infinite becoming all from nothing. Just the first verses. It also, the heavens and the earth were created. It denies pantheism because God is so eminent He is so close that he's in everything. That's what pantheism is. And also animism as well. But you're denied that right here because God is the one that created. He is outside and the creator. We don't worship the things. We worship the creator, not what he's created. And and it denies materialism, eternality of matter. It is not eternal. It was created by God. More on that in a moment. Bereshith bara Elohim. Created, the Hebrew word bara. It's used in scripture exclusively for the activity of God. Humans are able to make, which is the Hebrew word asa, or form things, the Hebrew word yasar, and even to build things, which is bana. But only God baras. Only God creates. You can see this also in verse 21 of this chapter. God created the great sea monsters and everything, every living creature that moves. Okay, God created them. And in verse 27, speaking of us, God created man in his own image. He created us. And over in 2, verse 3, It says, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all of his work which God had created. 
and made. There's a word, asa. We'll talk about that as we go through, because God asas as well as baras, okay? But bara is only for God. And I think we'll see how that plays out here in a little bit. It means a shape or fashion. And in the scriptures, only God is a subject when bara is used. It's used two other times. I just talked to you about that. And it's very interesting. It's always, it seems, in conjunction with life awareness. But God is always a subject of bara, the Hebrew verb for create. Augustine knew about this. He wrote about it in his Confessions. He says this, quote, For you created them from nothing, not from your own substance, or from some matter not created by yourself or already in existence, but from matter which you created at one and the same time as the things that you made from it. Since there was no interval of time before you gave form to this formless matter. I'll tell you what, the materialists, the atheists thinks that man is getting better and better. Augustine was thinking like that. If you just take that and try to put that through your pea brains, you will see that we are getting dumber and dumber and dumber. The smartest of us. That is quite a statement. For you created them from nothing, not from your own substance, or from matter not created by yourself, or matter already in existence, but from matter which you created at one and the same time as the things that you made from it. Since there was no interval time before you gave form to this formless matter. He's talking on Genesis 1 and 2. It's amazing. Only God creates ex nihilo. Ex nihilo means basically... Uh, out of nothing that pre-existed. Only God can do that. He creates something that exists. God made Asa, the expanse, in, in Genesis 1-7. And that is to fashion and organize things from that which he created ex nihilo. This initial verse is ex nihilo. He also formed Yatsar, which means to shape or sculpt materials into something. And when we say we've created a piece of art or a song, we would use the term like asa or yatsar, but never bara. We never create it from nothing. Only God can do something like that. So from nothing, God created everything, full stop. That's it. That's all you got. That's what the scriptures teach. Now, secondly, the space-time-matter continuum. Bereshith bara Allah, et hasha ma'im va'et eretz. Okay, it's just, it, it's just beautiful. Heavens and the earth, shamaim va'et eretz. This is an expression used in Hebrew to designate the whole universe, everything that you can conceive of. And it's used in the same way with day and night to signify all time, or with man and beast to mean all created physical beings. It does not just mean specifically the heavens and the earth, but rather everything that's in them. It's restated in Genesis 2-4 in a recapping of the work of creation throughout the six days. Quote, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Not up there and then down here. It's not what it's talking about. It's everything. 
when they were bara, created in the day of the Lord made heaven and earth. Now, it's used in other places to refer to the complete ordered cosmos, heavens and earth, but that's not what it's used for here. This is the first step in the process. The designation that God created the heavens and the earth then is the initial act of creation, which will now be followed by the account of the ordering of different parts of that creation created from nothing. He called everything into existence, and then we're going to see how he forms and shapes, separates out, differentiates, and that's in the days of creation. Luther believed this to be the correct understanding of this verse. He says, quote, Moses calls heaven and earth not those elements which now are, but the original rude and unformed substance. Evolutionary philosopher Herbert Spencer, one of Darwin's earliest and most enthusiastic advocates, outlined five ultimate scientific ideas. Now, this is the hubris of man without God. He said, time, force, action, space, and matter. These are the categories that compromise everything or uh, comprise everything that is susceptible to scientific examination. So, you know, he's obviously just touching on those things that he can see and he can feel and sense. That simple taxonomy, Spencer, uh, Spencer believed, encompasses all that truly exists in the universe. Everything that can be known or observed by science fits into one of those categories, he said, smugly. <laughs> Spencer claimed and that those are the only five. You can't get outside of that. That's it. Nothing can be truly said to exist outside of them. Oh, wrong was he, right? The very God that Spencer would never acknowledge addressed each category in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, that's time, one of his categories. God, that's force, one of his categories. Created, that's action, one of his categories. The heavens, that's space, one of his categories. And the earth, that's matter. And there you go. But Spencer knew better, right? I find it staggering, actually, that the origin of everything that science can observe, the Bible explains in a few succinct words in the very first verse of the Bible. Heavens. It's interesting. I, I told you it's all-encompassing. Shemayim. This is evidenced by the creation of the heavens. We, we often think of the heavens as the universe out there, outer space, right? That, that's the heavens, up where the stars are and everything, with planets and stars and galaxies. But it, that's not it. He created space. Follow with me for a minute, because this is, this is heavy. Space is not nothing. Space is not nothing because it was created. Space is something. Space is inherent in everything, and everything that exists, exists within space. And the word heavens is shamayim, and it can mean lofty or permanent, like a, a space stretched out over the vault of our 
globe, the planet, it's used like that in Genesis, but not here. The space referred to in Genesis 1.1 is used in a general sense, meaning all space everywhere. It's not the same as differentiated space on day four, seen in Genesis 1.4. Then God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens. That's a different, a different space. We do this all the time. There's inner space and outer space, right? Well, the space represented by the word Shemayim in Genesis 1.1 is primal space. It was barad. It was created by God out of nothing. Prior to this, it did not exist. Created by God as in the space-time-matter continuum. You know, I, I never forget when I studied art and really got into art. Um, it was actually in junior high. You guys listen up to me. Uh, you get all sorts of teaching in school, whatever school you're going to. And I remember studying negative space and how that impacted a picture that I would draw or a painting that I would paint. Space is very, very important. And here we have God creating space. Matter, Eretz, the earth. In Genesis 1-1, the term earth can be construed as matter. You need space in order to see matter. Did you hear me? You need space in order to see matter. In fact, we can see space only by the matter that it is within. Even though space by itself is invisible, we mark space by matter. We would be completely unable to conceive of space without matter. <laughs> and this is also how we are able to measure distance, because distance is the amount of space between things or matter. I'll tell you, anybody who wants to say that, oh, this is, you know, the Bible's just myths that some guy wrote. <laughs> Excuse me. This just blows your mind when you start thinking about what is written. And then beginning, that signifies time. Bereshith. This is the third and final component of the original creative process, that which comprises the raw materials created by God, barat by God, and from which he would go on then to shape and form the universe and fill it, all of us consider the idea of time from past to present, don't we? That's, that's our idea, from past to present. Some of us go into the future in our thinking, but we must admit, at least from Genesis 1-1, that time is a created commodity. Before God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, there was not time there was not space, there was not matter. There was something before time, God. Time flows, one author says, from the creator to the universe and passes into the historical events of the past. All things that exist are experienced through time. We cannot understand or control time. We can only experience it. Space itself is experienced in time. Matter is only revealed as the motion that its energy manifests during time. Time, like space, cannot be removed from the universe, but it had a start. 
And we see that in Genesis 1.1. Henry Morris, a creation scientist, explains the space-time-matter continuum to be an apt reflection of the Trinity. Let's go a little bit deeper. A trinity is both coexistent and coterminous, which means although composed of three different things, it cannot be separated or disconnected in any way from each piece of the whole. Tracking with me so far? Okay. It is the universe, universe, universe. One thing, verse, containing separately definable and distinguishable entities, uni, that cannot be taken apart. As mentioned earlier, each member of the Trinity was at work in the creation. The Father planned the work, the Son did the work, and the Spirit energized it. Can you imagine that? Can, can you imagine if we just kind of took out space from the time-space continuum? Or just take out time? Or take out matter? Can't do it. And so it is with the Trinity of God. Just beautiful stuff. In preparation for next week, okay, I'd like to introduce to you at least one lexical, grammatical reason to take all of Genesis as historical narrative. This is not a hard concept. It's not going to get real technical. The very first word in Hebrew, in verse 2, is a conjunction translated as and. Okay? Most of our Texts have that. My New American Standard, that is, in 1995, has the earth, but in the Hebrew, there's that conjunction, and. It's seen in the King James Version, if you have it. You'll have and. And the original NASB and the ASV. The conjunction shows a connection between verses 1 and 2. It addresses those who attempt to take verse 1 as a modifying clause for verse 2, and would then translate verse 1 like this. In the beginning, when God began to create, he began to create. That's not what it says. Instead, verse 1 stands alone as an independent statement, and then verse 2 begins with a conjunction, which is a, it's a vav consecutive is the Hebrew term for that. And it's a discourse marker for the continuation in narratives. Okay, it's how we know it's a narrative because it goes from one to the next to the next. And you can see that. Now, I want you to, if you write in your Bibles, here you go, okay? Verse 2, the first word should be and. If you don't have that, just write it in. Verse 3, you have then. That's recognizing the Vav consecutive. Go down to verse 6 and circle that. Then. Verse 9, then. Verse 14, then. Verse 20, then. Verse 24, then. And verse 26, then. They're all verses which introduce each day in the creation chronology of day 1 through day 6. Verses 2 through 31 constitute a complete narrative, and it's linked together by vav consecutives. That's how we know it's not long ages in between these things. Because even in a genre that it's written, there's markers that tell us that it's a narrative that just goes one, two, three, four, five, six. Now next week, we're going to begin our journey into the specific days of the creation week. 
And we're going to look at the mistaken interpretation that there is somehow a long age between verse 1 and verse 2. It gives allowance for people to say that there's, the earth is billions of years old. But we'll also see the wonderful beauty of God's preparatory creation, all leading to the crescendo on day six and the creation of man, human, humanity, if you will. Because humanity was the crown of God's creation. Everything prior to that was preparatory for man. In closing, let me add that the things that God revealed in Genesis 1 and 2 must be understood by faith. Hebrews 11.3 sums it up, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Hebrews 11.6 tells us again too that without faith it's impossible to please God for he who comes to God. Now this is a real sticker for a lot of people that don't know him personally yet. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Belief is first. Jesus once answered this question and don't let it be lost on you because if you come up against someone that just says, I can't believe, I can't believe, or I, I don't understand anything the Bible says. It's just nuts. It's just craziness. Well, Jesus was talking to some, some Jewish leaders, religious leaders, that did not believe in him. And he says, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe in me. But if I do do them, though you don't believe in me, believe the works. Believe the works. Now listen to this. So that, that's a purpose clause. So that you may know and understand so that you may know and understand. I, I think maybe that the key that unlocks everything is our will. We choose to believe, or we choose not to believe. And he says, so that you will know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. You will either believe in the Bible's account, or you'll believe something else. But you will be exercising faith. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Genesis. We thank you for this marvelous book of beginnings that puts into place, from your perspective, what is reality. The way you have created things is true. And you've revealed it to us in your word. Oh God, help us to submit ourselves to your truth. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.